this edition of Back to Basics with guest pastor Char Broderson. Paul is calling the church to live out our destiny of love, righteousness, peace, and joy in the kingdom of God. Paul's goal in all of this is the supremacy of love. Let love be the guiding principle in your interactions with one another as you use the gifts, as we come to the table, as we consider men and women and their different roles. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Char Broderson continues our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Char begins his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, in part one of a message titled, Instruction for the Worshiping Community, Living Out the Prophetic Vision. And now, here's Pastor Char. Well, we are continuing our studies through 1 Corinthians and everyday discipleship. I think it's good for us to remind ourselves that this letter was written to a local church who lived in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so just like any church in any time in any place, they had victories. It was clear that there were signs of God, his presence, his kingdom at work among them, and also there were glaring inconsistencies and evidences of the deep roots that their former lifestyle and culture held in their lives and community. Remember, it had been reported to Paul by the household of Chloe, friends of Paul and the local church at Corinth, that there were all sorts of issues going on in the church at Corinth. The church experienced social, spiritual, and sexual problems And it was putting members against one another and the congregation against Paul. And I know that as we have talked through this, it feels like Paul just has this long laundry list of issues, right? Okay, there's another issue with the Corinthian church, another problem. And I know it can feel like that, but all of these are symptoms of a much greater disease. And that is that the Corinthians had failed to understand the real-life implications of the gospel, the real-life implications of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified and risen again, and what that meant for this community, this new humanity. Remember, the community of believers in Corinth, they were not reflecting the values, practices, and culture of the kingdom of God but they were reflecting the values, mores, and habits of the culture of the day. And so Paul writes to bring them back in line with the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom of God. There's this quote by Leslie Newbegin that has been really helpful for me in studying 1 Corinthians. And he says this, the choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? Now, in chapter 11, verse 2, Paul turns his attention specifically to the worship gatherings of the Corinthian church. And he will address the varied issues in their gatherings all the way through chapter 14. 
And so Paul begins this section by commending the Corinthians, as he does even in the beginning of the letter. He commends them. They remember him. They remember the traditions that he passed on to them. But again, there are things that are out of line that need to be pastorally corrected. And I think it's good for us to ask, what is the standard? What's the North Star that Paul wants to give to the church for their gatherings? And it might not be clear in this first section, but I think when we take the whole of chapters 11 through 14, we see that Paul has in mind what's called the proleptic vision. Proleptic is a grammatical term in which a future event is so sure, so certain to be the case that it's spoken of in the present tense. You ever have the case where it says, kids, I'm in the car. We're on our way to school. Kids, I'm in the car already. I'm out the door. No, you're not. You're in the house, right? The proleptic vision or proleptic language is this, it's so certain to happen, so sure that I speak the future in the present tense. The proleptic vision is one way of describing the vocation of the church in the world. We've quoted this often, but Eugene Peterson called the church to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. So the proleptic vision is that the church now lives out what the kingdom is. We live out now what will be in the future reign of Christ. I love this from Lee Camp's book, Scandalous Witness. He says, the coming kingdom entails a shared abundance and unencumbered generosity. Thus, we practice generosity and hospitality even now in the present. The coming kingdom entails the unlearning of war. Thus, we learn the counsels of peace now. The coming kingdom entails the righting of all wrongs by truth-telling and suffering love. Thus, we tell the truth, practice suffering love, and right wrongs now. Jesus is speaking of the proleptic vision in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who mourn. These are those who will inherit the kingdom of God. This is what God's kingdom is like, and we're called to live it out now. Or consider the Apostle Peter's words to the church. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here, Peter is calling the churches to presently live out their future reality and hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just hope, it's present, living, active hope that Peter calls the church into. Now, back when we were teaching through 1 Corinthians 7, we saw how Paul called the church to live out this same proleptic vision. Remember when we talked about marriage and singleness and how these are gifts from God. And Paul says concerning the present time, all of these things are passing away. And so he wants us to live a certain way. And we talked about this overlap of the ages, that Jesus began the new kingdom age. And Paul calls the church to live out that kingdom kingdom overlap, not the part of this world. He wants us to live in the kingdom now. So the church, this proleptic vision, is to live in the light and reality of the coming kingdom of God in such a way that it transforms all our earthly relationships, stations, or status. 
Now, in these sections, 11 through 14, Paul applies this to women's dress and appearance. He addresses it in the section around the communion meal. And then in chapters 12 through 14, on the use and abuse of the gifts. And in each of these, Paul is calling the church to live out our destiny of love, righteousness, peace, and joy in the kingdom of God. And I believe that Paul's goal in all of this is the supremacy of love. Let love be the guiding principle in your interactions with one another as you use the gifts, as we come to the table, as we consider men and women and their different roles. 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched in the middle of all of this because this is kind of the apex of the argument. And this is because, paraphrasing N.T. right here, love is not just the duty of the Christian, but it is the destiny of the Christian. And so we are to live out now what we will be. So what does all of this have to do with head coverings, you ask? Great question. So let's talk about that. And let me first point out one very important aspect of this text, which all interpreters should be able to agree upon, but that is often overlooked. Paul assumes without any hesitation or discussion that women like men may pray and prophesy. That is, speak to God prayer and speak for God prophecy in the gathered church. Amen. This plainly means that women can address God on behalf of the assembly and can address the assembly on behalf of God. So no matter what else we conclude from this passage, we must stress the equality of men and women in Messiah Jesus. Amen. I love it. All right. So here's the question. To veil or not to veil? And this might be one of the most confusing passages of Paul's letters. And if it's not the most, it's definitely in the top three. And even as I say that, that could sound like, well, do we really even know what we're talking about then? Yes, we do know what Paul is saying. We do know what Paul is teaching, but it does mean that we really don't know a whole lot about the specific issue that he was addressing, specifically because the text doesn't say. And I believe that this text is similar to our last passage about food sold in the marketplace being offered to idols. It's a specific cultural issue to a specific time and place, and Paul brings biblical wisdom and principles to bear upon it. And I believe when this whole section is taken together, along with the greater context of this letter, we see a beautiful and consistent vision that the apostle calls the church into. Here are a few questions, I think, that we should ask when approaching this text. Maybe you want to write them down and think about them later. Number one, is this a passage about husbands and wives or about men and women in general? This is difficult because in Greek, these are the same words that are used, and it really depends upon the context. Then there is the question of headship. What does the word head mean? Does it mean authority? Does it mean source? Is it complementary and contrast to the body? Third question, 
is the passage about hierarchical or reciprocal relationships or both? Fourth and final question, is Paul, like in other passages in Corinthians, in dialogue with questions and opinions of the church, or is this Paul's own opinion? We will not answer all of these, but I do believe that these are important to ask of the text. Now, I want to give you the common interpretation of this passage, and then we'll kind of use this as our launching pad. So the common interpretation of this passage is that the Corinthian church had misunderstood Paul's teaching about equality in Christ to mean that there are now no distinctions at all between men and women. And so the women begin to dress like men. They begin putting off, you know, their head coverings and their female dress, and they were, you know, kind of androgynous. And so that's what was going on in the church. And so Paul takes us back to the creation order to see that even before the fall, humans were made male and female in the image of God. And it is only as male and female in Messiah that we image the new creation and the kingdom of God. Now, though I agree with the theology of this, Paul makes no mention of this teaching. And then along with this interpretation comes the application that women are to veil as a sign of being under biblical submission. Or women have to veil to show that they actually are women. Is that what the text is saying? And then on top of that is the fact that Paul says this is the rule or practice in all of the churches. Everywhere. We have no other rule, he says. What does that mean for us, then? And a majority of churches in Western culture who do not observe veils or head coverings. Well, it's quite simple, really. We are being unbiblical. If that is the right interpretation of the text. So I would like us to consider another possible interpretation of the text, but in order to do this, we must take off our Western world lenses through which we see things and put on the lenses of the veiling cultures in the ancient Near East. What do I mean by that? Well, the way Westerners, with our independent individualistic preferences, tend to see this passage is that there are a bunch of women in the Corinthian church who are insubordinate to the order of creation and biblical authority, and that they're using scripture to justify their insubordination, specifically Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female now in Christ Jesus. So because of this, Paul has to correct the women and put them back in their place by telling them to cover their heads as a sign of their submission, especially in the worship gatherings of the church. So then depending on where you sit, your own upbringing and experience, this might feel and sound very oppressive, like domineering patriarchy. Some see this as an oppressive practice, what was common of the day, views of women in those times, and then Paul and others are just children of their time, and so we don't need to listen to this ancient, backward, oppressive way of thinking. That's how some would approach this. Maybe some read it, and we just don't really think about it at all. Maybe because we're a man, 
And we don't feel like, well, it doesn't really matter to me. For others of you, you might not have a problem with this view at all. The question is, is our modern way of seeing this correct? And I don't believe that it is. So I'm going to make the argument to veil and just suspend your judgment just for a few minutes. <laughs> the way an ancient Near Eastern individual and community would view this is vastly different. Remember, the ancient Near East was and still is a shame and honor culture. And it was also, and still is to some degree, a veiling culture. This means then that the veil was not and is not just a sign of a woman being in submission to authority. It meant she was under protection by husband, father, or family. She belonged somewhere. But it was also a sign of honor. It was a sign of chastity. Kenneth Bailey, he wrote a book called Jesus Through Mediterranean Eyes. He says this, in traditional Middle Eastern society from the days of the Jewish rabbis to the present, a woman was and is obliged to cover her hair in public. Okay, Kenneth, why? Leela Ahmed, in her discussion on the background of veiling in Islam, says this, the rules on veiling, specifying which women must veil and which could not, were carefully detailed in Assyrian law. The veil served not merely to mark the upper class, but more fundamentally to differentiate between the respectable women and those who were publicly available, sexually available even. That is, the use of the veil classified women according to their sexual activity and signaled to men which women were under male family father protection and which were fair game. Now, it's a historical fact that during the Roman Empire, the veiled head was a symbol of modesty and chastity that was expected of a married woman, and that Octavian tried to legislate modesty in the way elite Roman women dressed their hair in public. The Roman matron's dress code, the veil, signified her rank as well as her status and role as a sexually mature woman. On the other hand, an unveiled head signified sexual availability so that a woman, slave, or a freed woman was prohibited from veiling. So I want us to think about all of this. Veils were a signal of honor, chastity, that someone belonged to a father, a family, a husband. It was a sign of protection and belonging. For those who could not veil, it was a sign of lower class, those who belonged to the slave culture, those maybe who had even been freed out of slavery. It was to signify your class and your place in society. And in light of all this, listen to Paul's instruction again. And remember, this is instruction on the gathered worshiping community. Every woman who prays, that is speaking to God on behalf of the congregation, or prophesies, that is speaking to the congregation on behalf of God, with her head uncovered, unveiled, dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Now, 
There's evidence that the shaved head was a sign of the temple prostitutes of the day. So Paul seems to be making a connection there again with the shame, the dishonor. But listen, Paul wants all the women in the gathered worshiping community to veil. This means that Paul wants all women to veil their heads while praying and prophesying, even those who according to Roman law are not allowed to veil in the culture. Those like female slaves, freed women, prostitutes, or those who came out of prostitution and those of lower class. Remember what Paul had already implied about the Corinthian community. They come from lowly stock, not many wise, not many noble. Some had come out of broken sexual practices and lifestyles like prostitution and temple prostitution. Paul says about all of that, that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. My question is, is this chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, Paul's practical outliving of 1 Corinthians 6, 11? He wants them to live out, but such were some of you, but now in Christ Jesus. You see, veiling and unveiling had direct social implications of shame and honor, chastity and impurity for the Corinthian church community. But Paul is dismissing all of the social categories and distinctions of noble, lower class, chaste, defiled, saying, I want all women in the worshiping community to have this status of honor and chastity. Now, this could be lost on us, but think for a moment with me of Les Miserables. Think of Victor Hugo's character of Jean Valjean and the way he and others in that society were marked for life by their past sins and failures. There is nowhere he can go where he can publicly live out in society because he's been marked. He has to hide. He's constantly on the run. This is what often happens in shame, honor cultures, or even in guilt, innocence type of cultures. And I would add that we are seeing the return of this kind of thinking and practice in cancel culture. Where can people go to be forgiven? Where can people go to be cleansed and reconciled and healed? Cynthia Westfall in her book, Paul and Gender, says, Paul's support of all women veiling equalized the social relationships in the community. Inasmuch as such veiling was in his control, he secured respect, honor, and sexual purity for women in the church who were denied that status in the culture. Wow. Wow. Paul's desire was that the Corinthian church would be a haven, a refuge from the social hierarchies of shame and honor in the surrounding culture. And as the church lived out this vision of respect, honor, and purity, it would radically stand out as a bastion of a different kingdom, a kingdom of honor, a kingdom of healing, kingdom of love and a kingdom of grace.
For the month of March, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian. With all the chaos, unrest, and uncertainty in our world, behind it all is the unseen realm where a spiritual battle is being waged. And this spiritual battle not only affects the world collectively, but even our lives individually. This month's book, The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian, will give you an understanding of the battle that is raging behind the scenes. You will understand the enemy who is waging war against you, his tactics, and how you can be equipped to emerge victorious. As people of God, we must be aware of the spiritual battle we're all involved in, the sophisticated ways in which we're constantly being attacked, and the provision for victory we have in Jesus. If you want to be equipped for the spiritual battle we're engaged in, or to be able to help others become equipped, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from our guest pastor, Char Broderson, as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.